So today, we're going to finish up Neuro. So, oh, it's nice and dark. I love the dark, don't you? So I got a slight shining in my eyes. All right, so today we're going to finish up Neuro. Last week, we did what two big Neuro problems? Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Both are called degenerative diseases because they typically come on with age. And there's a certain question of how much of it is a normal fact of aging and how much of it is disease. So with Parkinson's disease, what's the fundamental problem? No, I would never make fun. Extrapyramidal what? No, not symptoms. Destruction. And what do those extrapyramidal nerves produce? The extrapyramidal nerves that are destroyed, what do they produce? Starts with a D. Nope. How many of you watched The Simpsons? Oh, you said dopamine. Good job. You gotta say it louder. More authority. Dopamine. So, it produces dopamine. Without dopamine, we've got too much acetylcholine. So, the mismatch in dopamine and acetylcholine causes what two problems? Dyskinesias and psychological disturbances. What are the dyskinesias we talked about? Tremors, the mask. Postural instability and bradykinesia, where you don't move as much. And what are the psychological disturbances? Dementia, Dementia depression, depression, and impaired memory. All right. And how do we treat it? What's the best drug that we have? Levodopa plus carbidopa. How does levodopa work? All right, your body needs levodopa in order to create dopamine. So by giving extra levodopa, you allow the body to create extra dopamine. Now, what is the made, what's the problem with it, though? Why do we have to add carbidopa to it? Because it doesn't get to the brain. Yeah, because most of it gets destroyed out in your peripheral body, in the peripheral nervous system, and causes side effects rather than getting to the brain and helping the problem. Carbidopa prevents that breakdown allowing more of it to get to the brain. All right, Alzheimer's. What's the fundamental problem with Alzheimer's? Well, there's a problem with the protein being broken in the wrong place. So you get a buildup of this abnormal protein that begins to poison the brain, killing the cells. And which cells die in this case? Cells that produce what? Okay, ones that are associated with memory. But what do they produce? Okay, well, eventually we'll get neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques. But what neurotransmitter do the cells produce that are being destroyed in this case? Not dopamine this time. Acetylcholine. And you need acetylcholine to make new memories. So what is the major treatment for... Alzheimer's disease. Acetylcholine what? 
esterase inhibitors, but not the ones we learned about last semester because those are primarily in the peripheral nervous system. They don't get absorbed to your brain that well. So what are the ones, what's the one we need to remember now? Aricept or donazepril. And what's the other, the other type of drug that we use for, for Alzheimer's patients? Calcium channel stabilizer. And what's the one drug that we have? Mamantine or Namenda. And how does it work? It filters out the noise. Remember when we talked about if you're in a noisy room and you have a hard time making out what the person's saying, so you have to kind of guess what they're saying and lip read a little bit? Well, it filters out the noise so that your neuron can make a better decision. All right, and there's one last thing that we need to mention with Alzheimer's disease. If the problem is not enough acetylcholine, are there any drugs that can make this problem worse? Okay, I heard a yes. Now, what are they? You can't pass. Say again? Anticholinergics. So any drug that has anticholinergic properties can make Alzheimer's disease worse. So what are some drugs that have anticholinergic side effects? You have a whole slide of them from very, very early on last semester. Well, all of the anticholinergic drugs we learned, like atropine. What's the one we use for um, irritable bowel syndrome? Dicyclamine or bentol. What do we use for uh, urinary incontinence? Detrol or ditropan. Um, ipertropium doesn't really have that many side effects because it doesn't get absorbed into your bloodstream very well. It just stays in the lungs. Um, some others. What about Benadryl? What about Phenergan? Yeah. What about Lasix? Yeah. So if a patient is on drugs that cause anticholinergic side effects, sometimes if you take them off those drugs, guess what happens? They miraculously get at least somewhat better. All right, so now today we are moving on to epilepsy. Now, epilepsy is actually a group of diseases. It's not one particular disorder, but it's the general term for a person who has seizures. And seizures can come in several different forms. Now, the first thing is, what is a seizure? So I'll let you read the definition. Yes, excessive excitability of the neurons in the central nervous system. Now, what do we mean by excitability? They fire when they shouldn't. Now, how many of you talk in class when you shouldn't? Go ahead, go ahead. raise your hand. I, I won't look. Now, have you ever noticed that as long as only maybe one person's doing it, it doesn't really cause that much problem? But when one person starts doing it, what's the tendency? For other people to start doing it, and then everyone's doing it, and then it's utter chaos, and then I have to yell at you. So, just like in your brain, 
sometimes a group of neurons decide to start firing for no reason whatsoever. It's kind of like a, a dysrhythmia for your brain. So we call that an irritable focus. Now, as long as that irritable focus doesn't recruit other neurons, you won't have a seizure. You'll just have an irritable focus. But as soon as you can recruit other neurons, that's when the seizure begins. Now, if only part of the brain gets recruited, we call that a partial seizure. And if the entire brain gets recruited, we call that a generalized. So, seizures can range from a person going unconscious to just mild twitching or convulsions or even just the lights are on but nobody's home and then they come back. So seizures can have a variety of, uh, of ranges in how they present. Um, now, one thing that you need to know, anytime a person has lost consciousness, one of the things that needs to be examined and ruled out is seizures, because it could be a seizure. Um, when I was working as a nurse practitioner, I saw this young girl, she was maybe like 21 years old, and she came in, and I'm like, so why are you here today? Because I'm falling. Well, what? Because I'm falling. I fall. I'm like, you fall? Are you clumsy? <laughs> she was, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was she was having seizures, and not enough to actually make her go unconscious, but enough to where she couldn't, she was just like, Look! and she'd fall, and then, so anyway. So... Seizures can have a variety of uh, manifestations. Now, there's approximately 100,000 new cases every year in the United States, mostly in the elderly. Now, we think of epilepsy as being a kid's disease, most of us, and it is a kid's disease, but most of the new cases are actually in the elderly. And it's not, when we talk about epilepsy, sometimes we're talking about people, we don't know why this is happening to them, it's just happening to them. In the elderly, usually we know why. Because they're old, okay. And what goes along with being old that would cause them to have, be prone to seizures? Electrolyte imbalance. What else? Polypharmacy. When a person has more than four drugs, they begin to interact with one another. And when you've got a patient who's on 12 or 20 drugs, right, Hannah? You, you know, some of those drugs can lower the seizure threshold. Um, what else could make a person prone to getting seizures? Atherosclerosis of arteries that feed the brain. So that would be called hypoxia. Any number of things can actually put a person at risk for seizures, and the elderly seem to have more of them than other people. There are approximately 300,000 PEDS cases in the United States overall. That's a lot, but not nearly as many as the number of new elderly ones. All right, so we talked about the focus. Some causes of, fo of foci, congenital defects, hypoxia at birth, head trauma. Oh, that's another one. What do elderly people tend to do? Fall and whack their head. Cancer can also cause seizures. And who's more at risk for cancers, elderly people or young people? 
Um, what's the, what are the four most common places to metastasize? Kelly. Uh huh. Liver. Your brain. Your bones. So wonderful. You're so smart. All right. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's a trigger. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, um, so here's your actual definition of a seizure. You can read it. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, of the two types, partial seizures are only part of the brain. We have either simple or complex. We don't need to really care about the difference. And then generalized seizures are throughout the brain. We do need to know these different kinds of seizures. What, at least what the words mean. So, a tonic-clonic seizure. What does tonic mean? What is, what's the root word of tonic? Tone. Now, show me your muscle tone. You flex, right? So, in a tonic seizure, what happens is the person will clench up. Every, all their muscles become tense at once. A lot of times, they'll arch their back as they do that. Then, clonic comes from the word clonus, which means shake. So the person first tenses up and then begins to shake all over, uncontrollably. Now, tonic-clonic used to be known as grand mal, which is French for the big bad. <laughs> now, this is what most people think of when they think of a seizure. You see the person writhing on the floor convulsing, that would be the clonic phase of tonic-clonic. Then we have what we call absence seizures, which is also French. And that used to be known as the petite mal, the little bad. And in an absence, the person is absent for a few seconds and then can come right back. Now, for the most part, these are considered fairly benign because, you know, the person doesn't fall, the person doesn't, you know, hurt themselves. They're just kind of not there. And then they come back. Now, the problem is with our modern society and technology, if that person happens to be not there while driving, that can cause some bad problems. Another one is called atonic. And a, what's, what's the opposite of too much tone? No tone. So atonic would be no tone. Now, Kara, you are an expert at atony. When you get tired and your eyes begin to close, what happens to your head? It starts to get a little bit heavy. And sometimes you actually wake up because you get, it, it begins to fall and you catch it. Oh. Now, in an atonic seizure, the person can't catch it. And so the head drops. And that's called an atonic seizure. No, it's not like narcolepsy. Narcolepsy, the person's actually asleep. Here, the person is not asleep. I mean, they might be unconscious, but it's not asleep. Then we have something called myoclonic, where myo means muscle and clonic means shake. So you typically have one leg that will begin shaking uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it could be any. It could be any muscle, but it's typically limited to one, you know, one set of muscles. Then we have something we call status epilepticus. Now, what's status asthmaticus? Okay, when a person's having an asthma attack for 20 to 30 minutes and does not respond to normal treatment. Status epilepticus is when a person has had a seizure for 20 to 30 minutes. Some books say 20, some say 30, so we'll say 20 to 30. That does not respond to normal treatment. And then there's one last thing, something we call febrile seizures. These happen when you're... Um, when a fever gets usually above 104 degrees, a person is at risk for these seizures. The important thing to note is that these are not associated with epilepsy and do not put the patient at risk for further seizures once the fever is gone. However, the seizures, if not dealt with, can cause permanent brain damage. Question there? Well, it's typically how it comes about is the head drop. For the damage that's done with the febrile seizure, is that because of the seizure or the head condition? Um, the, the high fever puts the person at risk for the seizure. Well, then you said something about damage. Yes. All right. Now, what does your brain run on? Glucose with oxygen. Okay, so... When, you're, when you have a seizure, what's happening to the activity in your brain? It's firing uncontrollably. It creates heat, creates excess carbon dioxide, and you can use up a lot of the body's glucose supply, and it takes more oxygen. So it can actually damage the brain from the amount of metabolic activity that's going on. So that's why status epilepticus is quite dangerous. Um, by the way, this atonic with the head drop, the girl who I saw in the office who was falling probably had atonic seizures. You know, she's walking along and all of a sudden it's like, you know, all the muscle tone just went in her body. But if you're sitting down, usually it's the head that people notice. So are you, are you on the floor for a couple seconds or is it just like you hit the ground and you're like, get up? Or is it, is it just I think it varies. Yes. What? Okay, the word convulsion. The word convulsion and seizure are sometimes used interchangeably. However, convulsion is just, is, um, just the, the outward manifestation of a seizure. And convulsions are really just the clonic part of a seizure. So if you have someone who has an absent seizure and atonic, they don't really have any convulsions. So your book goes, has like a little paragraph or two on this. Basically, we don't want to use the word convulsions because it's just not accurate. But you'll hear a lot of people still talk about, you know, anti-convulsant medications. Um, and in fact, I think um, Professor Campbell still calls them that. But it's an older term that we want to now use the word anti-epileptic or anti-seizure medication. But you'll still hear them referred to as anti-convulsants a lot. So it's just a matter of terminology. All right. As far as seizures go... The first stage is called aura, and aura usually happens a day or two ahead of time. It's, it's very similar to the aura that a person can get for um, classic migraines. So it might be visual disturbances, might feel tired, just might feel kind of sick, um, might have hallucinations, may uh, have ringing in the ears, 
But it's just sensory perceptions that are not normal. And they usually proceed to seizure by a couple days. Now, not all seizures will have aura. Then the next stage is the seizure itself, characterized by intense amounts of firing of the neurons of the brain. Then after that, we have what's called the post-ictal stage, which is the recovery phase. And in the recovery phase, the patient will often be confused, disoriented, weak, and perhaps hypoglycemic. Why hypoglycemic? Because their brain's been burning up a lot of the body's glucose. And then we have the status epilepticus. Um, one thing that we do need to talk about with seizures is that some children in particular are susceptible to um, triggers. They can have sensory triggers. The classic sensory trigger would be a strobe or flashing light. So that's why you know, um, kids with epilepsy aren't supposed to go to rock concerts because the light displays can actually induce seizures. And uh, some, some TV shows also. Yeah, I was like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, hypoglycemia is another one. So, you know, a patient with with epilepsy should have regular meals, high fiber, low glycemic index, blah, blah, blah. All right. Anti-epileptic drugs. Now that we know what seizures are, there's three basic ways that we can treat seizures. One is we can suppress sodium influx. Oh, we think we need to... Uh, review for just a moment. How does, how does a nerve send an impulse down the axon? Okay, well, I mean, it comes from the dendrite, but how, I mean, what's the mechanism of passing that along? Okay, well, there is myelin sheath and it jumps, but how does it go within that part? An action potential. What, is an, what do we need before we can have an action potential? A resting potential. What is a resting potential? Charges? Ions? Okay, so what do we do with the ions? Where do the ions go? Alright, so this is our axon right here. And on the inside of this axon are a lot of big proteins. These big proteins have negative charges. Now, what gets attracted to negative charges? Positive charges. So sodium and potassium both want to come in and hang out with these negative charges. Does the neuron like that? No, it doesn't. So what does it do? It kicks what out? What's the number one electrolyte in the extracellular fluid? Sodium. So which one's going to get kicked out? Sodium. So sodium's going to get kicked out, but the potassium gets to stay. What's, that? What's the molecule responsible for that? The sodium-potassium pump. And if you want to get all technical, sodium-potassium, does it take energy to do this? ATPase. So sodium potassium ATPase is the molecule that we know as sodium potassium pump. So now you've got a whole bunch of sodiums on the outside. So the inside of this will be what charge? Negative. 
and on the outside you will be positive. This is what we call resting potential. Why is it resting? Let me ask you a question. Is this book right here, can it fall when it's on the table? No. But if I put it up like this, pump it upwards, now can it fall? So it has potential now, right? Is it moving? So it's at rest. So when we get an action potential, what happens here? Well, what, what would happen if we just cut some holes in the membrane here? Sodium would rush in. What would that do to the, to the potential? It would go away. So just like if you open up the gate, it fell. But it was in action, right? So that's what's going to happen here. We're going to... Now, can we poke holes in the membrane? Yes. What are those holes called? Channels. What kind of channels? Where are we getting calcium from? Sodium channels. <laughs> Several of you. I think it's you who started this, troublemaker. So, sodium channels open up and allow the sodium to rush in. Now, um, now, that's the beginning of the effect. Calcium comes later on. Um, so one of the things we can do is we can suppress sodium influx. And how do you suppress sodium influx? You make the channels less likely to open. Do we know of any drugs that work this way? Do you know of any drugs that work this way? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I bet most of you in this room have had that drug at least once in your life. At someone's office. It's not the doctor, but it does start with a D. The dentist. Lidocaine. Yes, we talked about lidocaine last semester, so you should all know that. Lidocaine works by blocking sodium influx. Now, what's the problem with using lidocaine? Is it selective for what neurons it interferes with? No, it just hits them all. Now, if we hit all of the neurons in our brain with a drug that inhibited sodium influx, what would we do? Well, we might die if we give enough. Or we would just go... What some of you are wanting to do right now, you just kind of fall asleep and drift off into a nice coma. Maybe wake up, maybe not. So what we would like to do is have a specific drug that only affects diseased neurons. Only those, what were they called? Sodium. No, they are sodium channels, but the neurons. We only affect the sodium of the neurons that are causing trouble. What are the troublemakers called? the irritable focus. So we really only want it to hit those, those seizure neurons. We don't, want to, we, want, we don't want them to affect all of the neurons. Now, there is a role for calcium, and we don't really need to know what it is right now. 
but we just need to know that calcium does play a part. And then also GABA. What is GABA? No, but what is it first, before we say what it does? It's an N word. Neurotransmitter, yes. And what does it do now? Does it cause neurons to fire or don't fire? So if we potentiate GABA, we're telling those irritable nerves, hey, hey man, chill out. It's okay, calm down, we can go get some therapy. <laughs> so those are the three ways that our drugs can work. Now, depending on what kind of seizures a person has, will depend on which kind of drug they'll need. And there's one drug that works by doing all three. Ooh, I'm gonna keep it a secret. <laughs> We'll talk about it in a moment. All right, now, the therapeutic goal. The therapeutic goal of anti-seizure therapy is to reduce seizures to the extent that patients live a normal life. Now, that changes depending on where a person is. If a person works with heavy machinery, how many seizures can they have? Zero, or they might die. If you're a lifeguard, how many seizures can you have? None. Or you or other people might die. Yeah. If, you know, so where a person lives depends on how many seizures they can have. If you're retired and have nothing to do but play golf all day, how many seizures could you have? Well, it depends on whether you walk or drive the cart. And on the water hazards. 60 to 70% of all epileptic patients are adequately controlled on therapy, which means that most of the people who have seizures were able to control so they don't have more seizures. Now, the question is, how much drug is necessary to control the seizures versus tolerability? Because they all have some side effects that are not very pleasant. So you need enough drug to control the seizure but not so much to make their life miserable. And what do you think the number one cause of seizures in anti, or number one cause of seizures in patients who already have epilepsy is? 